All of you on the good earth. One, That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Welcome to the latest episode of Talking Space. Tonight, we have with us Gene McCulka. Hey, Cassie, what's going on? Oh, lots and lots. <laughs> <laughs> we also have Mark Ratterman. Good to be here. And with us all the way from Turkey, we have Kat Robison. Herkese merhaba. And maybe a translation? <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> I was relying on context for that. <laughs> I figured, but I've also discovered that Turkish is not the best language to assume about. <laughs> Fewer words have never been spoken. <laughs> well, to start off this evening, we have some news regarding SpaceX and CRS-7. Gene, I believe there was a big announcement about that this week. Well, it wasn't really a, a huge announcement. It was, um, well, CRS-7, the uh, cargo resupply mission number seven that SpaceX was running, was lost on somewhere around June 28th, 2015. It was a spectacular disintegration over the skies of central Florida there. But um, SpaceX released the announcement of what had actually occurred. Actually, Elon Musk uh, had an audio press conference and surmised that it was some the failure of a strut inside the vehicle itself that uh, contained the uh, the second stage. Now we don't really understand what the situation really was there, but SpaceX was indicating that this problem could be easily fixed and they could be up and flying within a few months. But still, this kind of puts the ISS and uh, some of the logistical problems behind the eight ball a little bit, and it sent folks scrambling. As you know, we've had some logistical problems of late getting equipment to the International Space Station. We, of course, lost Orb 3 last year in November. We've lost uh, a couple of progress vehicles, and now uh, SpaceX, unfortunately, is, has been bit. So that kind of put NASA's logistics team behind the eight ball a little bit, and we had to play with a few things, but so far, so good on board the International Space Station. There's no real, real emergency as far as logistics are concerned. They can still kind of hold out for another you know, few months before they really get behind the red lines. But yeah, we should mention that after the CRS-7 mission that they lost, that there was a successful Soyuz progress resupply to the station. So the as you said, Gene, the station isn't at critical need. And part of the release of information, the investigation update about the strut, just for our listeners who haven't followed this, it was a strut that actually holds one of the um, tanks that failed at one-fifth of its supposed capacity to handle load. It fell at about 2,000 pounds of pressure, and it's supposed to 
maintain its structural integrity of up to 10,000 pounds of pressure. So it was really an unexpected failure. Uh, one thing, just as a side note to that, Jean, you mentioned the other loss of resupply missions we've had, the orbital loss, as well as the Progress uh, 59 that was lost. All three of these failed for different reasons, which just kind of goes to illustrate that nothing in spaceflight is routine and anything can happen at any time. Well, the good news there too, Kat, is that we just had a Expedition 44 just launched too, not too long ago, to the International Space Station and successfully docked, which means now the ISS is back up to uh, its full complement of six individuals and we're up and going with science. And so that also meant too that the Soyuz booster itself got a clean bill of health after the 59 Progress mishap. So, uh, and that was after, I believe, three launches prior, after the, uh, before we launched uh, crew on board. I think there was a, uh, I'm, I'm trying to dust off my memory here a little bit. I think there was a military launch for the Soyuz booster, and then there was uh, another Progress, Progress 60. And then I think there was a confidence level that uh, we could use the Soyuz booster again, and lo and behold, we got our crew up there. So, and that launch just occurred just last week. So, uh, we're we're still. I mean, the ISS isn't going to go anywhere. It's still in business. The interesting thing too, I saw after the actual reason for the failure was made public, and after the press conferences, is Elon Musk made a, an interesting comment saying that he felt that the company got a little complacent. I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, as soon as, you know, looking over what was released by the press, one thing that really struck me about this is after the overpressurization event, after the booster, after Falcon 9 was lost, Dragon was intact. Dragon is equipped with parachutes. However, the uh, Supply Dragon, the uncrewed version of Dragon, was never uploaded with the software to to deploy the parachutes. And so because of that, Dragon and its entire cargo, including an adapter that was headed up for uh, docking of future crewed missions to the International Space Station, was lost. And looking at, at what had happened over the past several months were two uh, missions to resupply missions to the space station were lost. There really was absolutely no excuse for Dragon not to have the software needed to save the cargo in the event of a booster loss. I mean, to me, like complacent doesn't quite explain it. There was just no excuse for that software not to be uploaded to the craft. Well, yeah, the other thing, too, I believe Musk said during that press conference was that had Dragon been outfitted with the same type of, uh, you know, push uh, the Super Draco engines that will be installed on the crew version, that would have been survivable and you would have had good cargo return. So the U.S. taxpayer, anyway, would not have lost anything, save maybe the booster. But uh, the logistics that Dragon was supposed to carry up would have been saved. So that's, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's Monday morning quarterbacking in a way. But uh, uh, it, it's one of the things that Musk was trying to go ahead and state. But in his eyes that, yeah, again, he felt that the company as a whole kind of really felt 
you got complacent after 20 successful launches and and so on. They were riding a bit of a high. And Kat, if you recall, even after the uh, the Orb 3 accident, I mean, it wasn't SpaceX saying it, but the sort of community was kind of trash-talking a little bit between the two competitors, SpaceX and Orbital. Uh, I'm kind of wondering what impact, and I'm going to throw this open to the floor, what impact do you guys think that this is going to have? Because I know that the cargo resupply contracts are coming due. What impact do you think that now that all of the runners have basically stumbled, what do you think that's going to do for the cargo resupply contracts going forward? Well, you kind of wonder if the contract, you know, the folks that are actually writing these contracts and negotiating them, you wonder if they're not uh, looking at, gee, should we put in a a clause where we require delivery or, you know, something like that. But, you know, that gets into into the money issues of space flight that, you know, if you take zero up there and do it successfully, you've still spent a phenomenal amount of money. I'm not stating that too well, but I think you know what I'm saying. Hey, Cassie, what do you think? Is this going to, now that both of the runners have kind of stumbled, do you think that's going to have an impact on, uh, on the cargo uh, stuff going forward? Well, I think it will naturally have some sort of impact as they review what's happened. But I think part of the equation needs to be how each company handled it. Because, as we always say, these things are somewhat inevitable. And it's in how you handle it and your plans for making things better in the future. Elon Musk's statement about being complacent, that was a huge thing to say in the middle of this race to get the next contract. That was quite a thing to say. It was a very humble thing for him to say. And if he leads his company in a direction where they get a little bit humble <laughs> and really look at how to make sure this doesn't happen again, and of course also maybe update how they deal with third-party suppliers as well, then I think a lot of this comes down to really how they handle it more than the actual disasters that have happened. I couldn't agree more, Cassie. I think that, you know, it's not that you have a failure. It's how you handle the failure. And I think every single one of us have said this off the air, but these things sucks when they happen. But we're really glad that these things are happening before these companies start taking people into space because it gives them an opportunity to improve and learn. And we certainly don't want any company that's complacent sending up astronauts. Yeah, agreed. I mean, it, it's, I, I'm, I'm number one, I'm glad it, if it was going to happen, I'm glad it happened on a cargo flight where nobody could have been injured or worse. But uh, it will take from what we're getting from this probably apply it to the man-rated version of Falcon and keep pressing forward. So then this way, that I think Falcon is going to be a safer booster going forward, you know, to launch crew. We'll take what we have, learn from it, and so on. But uh, Elon Musk and Humble just doesn't, it just doesn't <laughs> mesh right with me. Um, <laughs> y- you know, th- th- there, there's two words that are totally and completely mutually exclusive. But, you know, that's the thing is, okay, like Elon Musk, it's really easy to just pigeonhole him. But if you look at all of the companies that he's built, 
He is a risk taker. He has to have a lot of arrogance. You cannot do what he does without a whole lot of arrogance. So, of course, that's part of it. But once in a while, the truth is somebody like that does need to remember in like in moments like these does need to remember, oh, yes, we're actually doing something really hard here. I've been very lucky to have the success that I've had. What do I do to just get back on track on the constantly going up? Because, I mean, the trajectory he's been on now, you know, Tesla has had a lot of setbacks as well, and he's plowed through them. And honestly, as much as he puts forth purely a sort of arrogant front, there has to be some part. If you are just nothing but arrogance, at some point you can't work with technology. This, All of this stuff is so humbling deep down, even if he never shares that with anyone. You know he has to have his moments where he looks at, okay, need to like reset my course here. Because you can't have this many companies have this much success and this many daring new technologies without having the ability to look at what you've done right and done wrong and use them to make it better. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. But it, it, it's and, – and again, another point that, that the group has already pointed out, and I'll, I'll say it here, is not, okay, fine, you stumbled. And I, if I recall exactly during the mishap press conference later, Bill Gerstenmeier basically said, you know, we expect this. We know things are going to stumble. We know things are going to happen. It's how you go ahead and pick yourself up and dust yourself off and move forward. And uh, uh, we'll see how SpaceX does it because we're, we're, I've been watching Orbital Sciences or, excuse me, Orbital ATK very closely now and uh, seeing how they are picking up and dusting themselves off from last October. Uh, and it looks like they are going to be on track uh, for a November launch of Orb 4. Uh, this will be the new improved Cygnus, so there'll be much more up mass going there. And of course, uh, the space station can sure use it. This is also a virtue of the fact that uh, the Cygnus is going to be flying on an Atlas V. It is not going to be flying on uh, on Antares this time. But we're going to be flying out of, out of the Kennedy Space Center. So, and they are, you know, just to, to add, Orbital is currently still on track to resume Antares flights next year in 2016. That's correct. They're, they're, I believe the, the, the target date for that is for March of 2016. And also, last time I looked, um, the uh, uh, Pad Zero A over in Wallops is also targeted and, and ready to support. So... Orbital is is kind of dusting itself off and, and moving forward. It had a, had a go-forward plan within about six days of the event. And uh, we'll see how SpaceX recovers. Uh, they say they can probably be up and flying in a few months. So we will see what happens. Got- I would also like oh. to to point out one of the reasons that SpaceX is able to look at a, at a sooner return to flight is also because none of their launch hardware where they launch from was damaged unlike with orbital right with the occurring so soon after launch and their launch pad suffering a lot of damage so i've seen a few comparisons between the two and those comparisons are like comparing apples to oranges because the events were different and the damage suffered was different 
And not only that, there was a lot of controversy getting that pad back up and running uh, as far as who was paying for what, because there was a big hullabaloo as far as what the uh, the state of Virginia was going to pick up, what Orbital Sciences was going to pick up. And I believe NASA finally stepped in with uh, $20 million to go ahead and refit the pad. But just with the caveat that, hey, guys, next time, plan. <laughs> plan ahead. This this stuff is going to happen, and it's going to keep, you know, it's... It's bound to happen. It's inevitable. So yeah, it's it was a learning experience, I think, for, for everybody all the way around with uh, the orbital situation. And, of course, this will be a learning experience for SpaceX, too. And they can only emerge from it. They'll figure out what went wrong, fix it, and go fly again and emerge with a stronger vehicle and a much more reliable vehicle as a result. So. I'm not saying that accidents are going to, you know, I'm not saying they're good things when they happen, but uh, they do point out some flaws and, and we get a chance to sit back and look at what we're doing and go fix and fly much more reliable. So, again, looking forward to seeing what SpaceX has got uh, up and coming as far as uh, getting Falcon to get back back together and uh, and also um seeing their uh, their cargo vehicle fly again so we'll we'll just have to you know, wait and, and watch and and see by the way um real quick how any bets on seeing orb four get pushed to the left a little bit i don't know that you can uh, really do much in in that respect maybe because i think there was there were some hints if i recall exactly the press conference that that might happen any any takers, yay or nay? You can mark me down as skeptical. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I think I'm going with Mark on that one. <laughs> okay. Because I know there was some talk about it trying to move it a little further to the left, try to move it into late October. Because I think right now they're scheduled for mid-November. I can see the practical reasons why they would try and do that. It's just a matter of it's so far out. I just don't trust anything when it comes to launch dates. <laughs> <laughs> this far out. and it, there's there's another way of thinking gee let's hurry up and see if we can hopefully not make any mistakes by hurrying up yeah yeah there's that yeah, too. maybe maybe we ought to just stick with our tried and true process um I, I'll, I'll add something here too a little bit don't don't forget the japanese they've got uh htv5 flying in the not too distant future i believe it's it's sometime next month so uh, again, yes, yeah. yes, that's the plan. Yeah. So, so as long as that goes off and works perfectly, as we hope it does. Knock on wood. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's been quite the year. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. And and I, I don't want to go off and say that tired cliche, but it it is a reminder that this stuff is a difficult business, and. It is. Uh, yeah, and, and and we want to make sure that uh, we go ahead and, and get these things off correctly. Speaking of which, too, just another bit of news that happened that I caught uh, wind of before coming on. Speaking of mishaps and things like that, this week, uh, I believe Thursday morning, about 9.30, the NTSB is going to hold a public hearing on the loss of Spaceship Two. Uh, so that's something we might want to go ahead and look at. It's Monday, July 27th, as we record this so this coming thursday uh again at 9 30 the ntsb is going to go ahead and take a look at what uh is going to hold a public hearing to uh kind of kick around a little bit what may have gone wrong with the vss enterprise back on halloween of 2014 
I do know that uh, the chairman of the NTSB was basically saying that uh, his, his thought was that perhaps Spaceship Two is a bit of a handful to fly. And he's thinking that maybe there are some manual processes on board the spacecraft that need to be automatic and might need to be automated slightly. I mean, that's one of the things that he, he's looking at because he says that it, in his eyes, this is a demanding vehicle to fly and it leaves itself open to too much error. Uh, so th- that was reported just today, I believe, by Space News. So quick correction there. That is on Tuesday, July 28th, tomorrow morning. Okay, thank you. Thank At 930. You, so, thank for you. some of us, it is already Tuesday, July 28th. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. Um, the feeling, the thought is that some of the processes on board could be automated. Now, they're building a new spaceship, too, now. Virgin Galactic is, is, is constructing a new spaceship, too. And I am wondering, and I'm, I'm hoping, knock on wood, that some of what has been un- uncovered thus far is being incorporated into this vehicle. And I'm wondering if a whole new controls redesign is going to come out of this from with the NTSB. I guess we'll, we'll find out a lot more tomorrow. Yeah. It'll certainly be interesting to hear. And it certainly has been a difficult year for spaceflight, but also a pretty amazing one. Yes, yeah. I was just going to say, in the midst of all these disasters and all these press conferences to find out what happened on these, we also had one of the most exciting moments in the history of spaceflight. And that was on July 14th, when New Horizons made its historic flyby of Pluto. So, Gene, you were in the room for the press conference. (laughs) Yeah. I think that you should introduce us to New Horizons. First off, thanks, Cassie. The New Horizons spacecraft, as we all know, back on July 14th, actually had, there were two moments that stand out in that mission. One was the actual time of the flyby itself, which I believe was about 7.48, 7.49 in the morning. Uh, on July 14th, but then we wouldn't know if the spacecraft had survived or was was still with us for another nine hours yet. And that moment eventually came at about 8.52 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time when we got uh, full telemetry back from the spacecraft. It said we're here, we were getting engineering data, and it also indicated that its entire cache of memory was full. And that's when really, really the applause just absolutely went booming in the auditorium over at uh, John Hopkins uh, Applied Physics Laboratory. I mean, it was deafening. We were all given uh, American flags to go ahead and and celebrate. And and lo and behold, it was indeed quite a celebration. Charlie Bolden was on hand, broken wing and all. It looked like he had a little bit of an issue with with his arm. Uh, he said no, he wasn't going to tell anybody how it happened. Quite a grand celebration. And uh, Alice Bowman, who was the um, primary navigation officer, she was in charge of literally trying to get the spacecraft, which is about the size of a, a baby grand piano, some three billion miles across the solar system. She was just, I think she was just a loss for words. You could tell that was one happy, happy lady, but... 
she was speaking of humbling moments and things like that. She was constantly trying, at least with us in the press, I think she was a little bit overwhelmed by the attention first, but she was always quick to deflect the attention off of herself and onto the, the many members of the navigation team that worked extraordinarily hard on getting the spacecraft over there. Just a word on the John Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. It is a gorgeous facility. The people over there were fantastic. I had a, just a very quick moment with the center director there saying that uh, you know they, they really did bend over backwards. And the center director told me that this was the first time they ever had to deal with something of this magnitude, period. This was the largest event they ever dealt with. And you'd never know it. They they were extraordinarily professional. They were taking care of us in the press like you wouldn't believe. So they really did an extraordinary job. And I just wanted to go ahead and extend my thanks to everybody that uh, were kind of nursemaiding us through this whole process. I got there on Sunday. The action really didn't begin to start on, until Monday. And there was an army, literally, of scientists and planetary geologists streaming through. One of the moments I did have... We're going to expand these discussions, by the way, I should before I even start this, I should go ahead and let you know that we are working on a very, very long four-part series on the whole experience that I'm currently putting together now. All of the interviews that I was able to grab, all of the moments that I was able to go ahead and put together, we're going to, we're going to put this all in one big bow for you, and we're going to run it in a four-part series. Uh, again, I'm working on that right now, and hopefully the first part of that will be released uh, next week. So I'm, I'm looking forward to telling you the complete story, but I'm going to just give you a little bit of a flavor of what we encountered uh, that entire week. Uh, one of the people I did talk to was, was somebody from here in New Jersey, Camelia Aquino-Smith. She's one of the uh, project scientists with New Horizons. And uh, she was giving us a little bit about what she was doing. In fact, uh, if you check out the New Horizons website, and she was one of the ones that put this whole thing together. It's a sort of a timeline of what was going on at any given time and so on. That was one of the minor things that she was given charge of. So if you want to go ahead and relive what the flyby was like, uh, just take a look at that. Take a look at the, uh, the New Horizons website. We'll put a link uh, to that in the show notes. And, and Cassie, I'll go ahead and give that to you. I want to interject here, Jean, as you've been talking about this. I remember back in May, Cassie and Amy and I were freaking out <laughs> over that gif of Pluto and Sharon together. And, I mean, we can learn how, like, horrible those pictures are in hindsight, looking at what, at what we have now mm-hmm. and the pictures that we got from New Horizons. But, you know, Pluto, you will always be the pizza in my planet mnemonic. (laughs) And this was really just an exciting time. Making the unknown known is one of the most amazing things that we do together as humanity, that we send out these robotic carriers of our very alive hopes and dreams and wishes, and we get to see pictures of a world that in our lifetime has only been pixels. And now we have new understanding of what it means to be a new planet or to be a dwarf planet or whatever you want to call it, because Pluto and Sharon have really rocked our understanding of planetary geology. And it's really exciting. 
And anytime that you have a group of scientists in a room together going, what? I don't know. We didn't know. This is crazy. This is exciting. We can't wait to find out more. I mean, to me, that's the epitome of what we do as humans. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we're also finding out that this is a very dynamic place. And as soon as we we started getting data back, we discovered that, indeed, this place is still geologically active. Yeah, it's sort of the opposite of everything we've heard or learned or been taught. (laughs) And it says so much about how little we knew about this planet, even down to everybody was reacting immediately like, I painted all of my Plutos the wrong colors <laughs> back in school. It's absolutely shocking how, you know, Pluto has been so talked about the past few years because of whether or not it's a dwarf planet or a planet. And everybody's been so focused on that issue. It feels like all of a sudden we're actually, it's like, we actually have a, an idea of what Pluto is, and it, the term matters a lot less than all this stuff we're learning about what's going on on it. Yeah, I mean, we, we're, we're seeing now that there are possibilities for nitrogen ice flows. There's evidence for that on the planet. There is obviously an atmosphere. In fact, it looks like our timing was just exquisite because it looks like, according, at least according to the last press conference, that we got there just in time to measure the atmosphere because by all, all accounts, it looks like it's in the process, it may be in the process anyway, of crashing back down onto the planet's surface again. We, and we may have caught that process just as it was starting. Also, the interesting thing is it confirmed that it does have an atmosphere. In fact, uh, one of the latest photographs that were released just last Friday showed that there is actually a haze in the planet's atmosphere, and we're trying to learn more about that. Pluto is just a place that <laughs> it, it's asking; it's still asking a lot of questions. And right now, New Horizons is is the only one with the answers. And it it's is pretty. It's pretty amazing. I mean. Just the announcement during Friday's press conference that based on just the little bit of information we have back so far from New Horizons, and there's just months and months of data yet to come, that tidal heating is not needed to power geology on icy worlds. Right. That's an amazing land-breaking new discovery in planetary science and planetary geology. Prior to this mission, we thought that If geology was happening, you know, so geology looking at plate tectonic schists, volcanoes, active surfaces, active planets to happen, we thought there had to be tidal heating. Tidal heating meaning, you know, force between two objects. So for those of you unfamiliar with it, you can think of it how our moon controls the tides on Earth, and we have ocean tides because of the impact of our moon. It's the same on other worlds. Well, Pluto and its largest moon Sharon are actually in tidal equilibrium, meaning that there is no tidal heating. So that tidal heating cannot power this active geology that we're seeing on Pluto. It's completely rocking our understanding of planetary geology, and it's exciting. And without a spacecraft like New Horizons to do a close flyby, we would have never known this. And it's amazing. Yeah, and and to think all of this started because of a postage stamp series. That was the inspiration back in in 1989 
where uh, a postage stamp series was set up by the U.S. Postal Service. And the final one, when Pluto was still considered a planet by the IAU, was the connotation not yet explored. And uh, now, obviously, we're going to need a new postage stamp, as Ellen Stern has been asserting. But again, Kat, what you were saying, and that discovery, I believe, was one of the first ones made. Uh, that was made almost the day after the first pieces of data started coming down. And again, we've only got 5% of the data off the spacecraft at this point. So who knows what's to come? To, to just kind of bridge the gap a little bit, we're not going to get a lot of pictures, at least in the coming month, in, in August. A lot of the data that's going to be coming back down will be engineering data that will basically tell us the health of the spacecraft and make sure that uh, some of the instruments are still operating okay. After, um, after August and September, the flood of data is going to continue again. The flood of science data will be new images to behold. And, and I am just, it's going to be Christmas every day for the entire science team over there. And I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to hearing what, uh, what comes out of this mission. Hey, Gene, when uh, early in your experience there, mm -hmm. was there uh, any particular statement where they talked about the rate of data that would be coming to us and how slow it was going to be? Did, was the press aware of that? We Well, I believe we were. Um, I'm not too sure everybody else was kind of aware of that, but I know most of the elements of the press that I was hanging around with, they were well aware that we were going to have uh, transmission problems and we knew there was going to be, well, not problems, but we knew that uh, it was just going to take time to get the data off of there. And there were no, you know, when we heard that it was going to take about 16 months to uh, get the data off of the spacecraft, there really wasn't any huge surprise with that, that amount, of, <laughs> amount of time. No. No mass amount of groaning from the uh, conference room. No, no, there wasn't. I think most of the folks that I was huddled with, they were, how can I put it? They were, they were old salts. They'd done flyby missions. A few of them had been there since Mariner 4. So if that gives you any idea of what their experiences are as far as flyby missions. A lot of them were grizzled veterans from Voyager and, and so on. So, so we th they kind of understood that uh, uh, the data was not going to be immediate, and and there wasn't a lot of groaning and all that going on, at least not to the the folks that kind of understood what was going on. There was a few that just didn't kind of get that, and we had, had to pull them over and kind of show them, you know, why that all is, and so on. So, there was wasn't a lot of like uh, groaning. Yeah. Okay. I got another news type question. Sure. Kat, what was the local reaction, local news like for you hearing about New Horizons when it was approaching, uh, you know, the day before, two days before and through the flyby? Well, in Turkish, I love Pluto is Pluton, which is just really fun to say. And here it made front page news on a couple of the news outlets. So they're like, you know, Yinirezim, Pluton, you know, there's new pictures from Pluto. And it was pretty exciting. I actually talk to my host family a lot about space, so it's really fun. 
I got text messages from several of my friends here in Turkey. Everyone texted me and been like, Pluton, did you see that there's new pictures? Which was pretty exciting. So people were talking about it. It was in the news. You know, people here are excited about space. Turkey signed legislation a year or so ago to start their own space agency. It hasn't actually started yet, but Erdogan has claimed several times that there will be a Turkish space agency and they're hoping to have a Turkish astronaut in space in the 2020s. So there is some excitement and pictures like this, people all over the world follow. And, you know, to see it on the front page news of a foreign publication while I'm in Ankara was really cool. The American embassy was tweeting about it here in Turkey. So that was really interesting to see and see them tweet. And, and just personally, as I'm here in Turkey for an intensive language scholarship, so I got to learn a lot of new vocabulary <laughs> reading the uh, reading the news in Turkish about space. So it was really fun to be here and to talk to people about it. And, you know, even last month when uh, Jupiter and Venus were very close to the moon, I was pointing out uh, Jupiter and Venus. People here are just as excited about space as we get. Um, I think that looking up and looking up with awe and wonder is something that's a universal language. We can all understand how exciting it is to explore something new and something we haven't seen before. The Pluto flyby was 50 years to the day of our first close-up look of Mars from Mariner 4. And it really closed a chapter on planetary exploration in one of the most exciting ways possible, in my opinion. We were the generation who got to see all the planets of the solar system explored. And we'll get to see more objects in our solar system explored as the years go on. Yeah, planetary science and, and the robotic exploration of planets is a real win for NASA. And it's something that I can be proud to talk about as an American. Something that NASA has done, because let me tell you, there have been years that I have been abroad that I'm like, yes, hello, I'm from North America. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really exciting to be abroad when the scientists back home are doing something really exciting. That was one of the things, too, that I, I saw a lot of, well, complaining, because a lot of people were saying, oh, we're just thumping our chest a little bit too hard on, on this. And I said, wait a minute, guys. The United States right now just became the only nation on the planet to go ahead and visit all, basically, all nine major bodies in, in the solar system right now. We just completed the first reconnaissance of the solar system with New Horizons. And that's not a small, that's something I am not going to apologize uh, on celebrating, guys. I mean that. I, and then also just to point out that, you know, there definitely was is a lot of national pride. In, and, you know, there's a lot of reasons that I have been proud to be an American overseas this summer. It's, it's been a good year or a good summer. I mean, there's been some issues, but there's also been a good summer. But these missions aren't just NASA missions. There are international scientists a lot of our missions have international instruments on them. Um, so when NASA wins, the world wins. And just a reminder, too, this is also the very first planetary probe with a student experiment on board. The student dust experiment that has been collecting uh, particle information as New Horizons has been flying through the solar system. And we'll continue to get that data. That's another point of pride that I would, I'm just going to go ahead and point out. 
And it was something, too, that I believe Alan Stern fought for because I talked with uh, the project manager on that uh, particular experiment, and he indicated that uh, there was a point where there was an identical company with an identical experiment, and yeah, it was cheaper to go ahead and throw that one on, and NASA theoretically could have done that and you know be done with it. But no, they decided to go ahead and go with the student program to really, really try to encourage education and really encourage students to kind of be part of something that might be that, – that would just grab the imagination. And I believe there's a – this is now – there's a fifth-generation team now working on this experiment. And while New Horizons is still healthy, they are going to continue to have teams of students working with this experiment. So it's it's kind of exciting. And one or from what I understand too, there were like two PhDs that came out of that. And one student hung around and uh, is now part of the imaging team. Just saying, it was just a, a neat deal. Can you tell us a little bit about what's coming in the future when we'll get more information? Okay, again, uh, for the remainder of August, we're going to get some engineering data down just to make sure that the spacecraft is healthy and, and, is, and is functioning. Then in September, the resumption of science data will be, uh, be coming down. And again, everybody, fasten your seatbelts. If there's anything like uh, what's been going on uh, these past couple of weeks, wow. That's all I'm going to say. Just hang on to your socks. <laughs> uh, there is an extended mission in the works. In fact, during the press conference, one of the uh, Pluto's children asked that question, and I wanted to just run over and give this young lady a huge hug. Pluto's children were essentially the kids that were born in 2006 when the uh, New Horizons mission was launched. And uh, a few of them were invited as uh, guests to attend uh, the ceremonies that uh, took place for the flyby. She was, was able to ask, well, what about the extended mission? And uh, the extended mission is being uh, put together. There's a proposal being written up to fly by one of two Kuiper Belt objects uh, and try to see what we can do to, to zero in, in on those. They've got, they initially had about three planned they had to drop one, so we're going to be looking at uh, two. But uh, they've only got enough uh, power and fuel for one. So keep an eye on, on that. Stay tuned as far as any future uh, mission for New Horizons. But uh, the rest of the spacecraft will continue to take data just as much as uh, Voyager is. And it should be healthy through, um, I believe they've got enough power on the on the. Uh, radioisotope thermal nuclear generator till about 2030. So expect a healthy spacecraft through that period of time. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. And while we're on images, we just got now, I was just reading about how the whole Earth photo from the Apollo missions was the only picture that's ever been available of the full disk of Earth. Well, all of that has changed now with a little mission known as Discover. Kat, can you tell us a little more about that? Absolutely. As you know, we have followed Discover on this show from its launch to some of its first science data. And just last week, we received the first full hemisphere picture of our planet since the Apollo 17 mission in 1972. So it has been 43 years since we had been able to take a picture like that. 
And most people didn't realize it because all the pictures we see of the earth where it's just one full side of the earth, sunlit, beautiful, hanging out there like a blue marble in space are actually all from that Apollo 17 mission. So now that's no longer the case uh, since Discover reached its uh, orbit. It now has a camera that is pointed at the Earth and will be taking pictures every day of our Earth. And by September of this year, there's planned to be a website up to put those pictures online. And this is really interesting because Discover actually started out as a project spearheaded by Al Gore, uh, thinking that if... Okay, I found this on the web for your picture of our planet. Sorry, for some reason, Siri, you're going to have to edit that, but Siri just decided to join. Okay, Siri decided to join the panel. That's fine. I decided to join the conversation and tell me all about Apollo 17 and Earth pictures. Um, anyway, Discover started as a project from Al Gore who thought that if we were able to see a picture of Earth every day, that it would inspire us to take better care of Earth. And the satellite got built and basically put into storage until it was refound and repurposed by Discover in order to be used as an early warning indicator for solar storms, uh, since solar storms and solar activity have such a profound impact on a lot of necessary daily use systems here on Earth. But this is really amazing that we're going to be getting regular pictures of our entire planet, the first ones in over 40 years. And, you know, personally, when I saw this picture, like, my breath was taken away because it's beautiful. And, you know, me, I'm a poet, so I immediately had to write a poem about it. But, you know, this is our planet, and it's the only planet that we know for sure right now holds life. And it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And to be able to look at it in its entirety is something that is awe-inspiring and is amazing. And... And it's a way for us to continue to do science as well. And to tell the truth, that same picture, that full Earth picture that inspired Gore, is the same picture that inspired things like Earth Day and started the entire environmental movement. So there is something to the premise of seeing these pictures and seeing them updated, seeing how Earth changes could actually have quite a profound impact. Basically, we're really grateful to NASA. We talk about this regularly. We constantly say thank you on this show. Well, Mark, why don't you explain to people how they can get involved in thanking NASA? Thanks, Cassie. Well, you know, this is something that I think we've all used here and there. And what I'm asking for is to let's make this part of our regular daily social media experience. Now, in my case, every day doesn't necessarily work because I don't necessarily spend that much time or look even at social media on a daily basis. But here's what I want folks to think about using and use it where it's appropriate, not just for every little bit of trivia that you see that you is kind of a wow moment. But the hashtag, thank you, NASA. Let's use that when we find something really special, maybe once a day, every other day, whatever works for you. But when you find something really special that you just wish everybody could see and not just see it, but at the same time say, thank you, NASA, for this gift, for this amazing thing that you shared with us. 
Now, in the tweet, for instance, I did this on July 22nd. We were talking about that image from Discover of the, the whole Earth uh, image. And I tweeted, uh, thank you, NASA, for this great epic Earth image from the at NASA Discover spacecraft. And then I had the link. I would have used the uh, Twitter account for Discover if I had time. It was just before I left for work. I was pressed for time. But put in there whatever you can. If it's, it's a link to a web page, whatever it is. If it's a picture, if it's some science that, that comes from New Horizons. But look at these things as things that... Don't take it for granted, I guess, is my point. You know, when you find something really special, be appreciative, say thank you. And, you know, hopefully it'll mean something to the folks at NASA, to the people that are connected to NASA that bring us all this phenomenal science. So hashtag, thank you, NASA. Again, don't use it for everything under the sun. Use it for something really special. And in my case, there was one that I have done since a few days ago that I got absolutely no response on. But, you know, it's out there. I felt good. And who knows? Six months, nine months from now, somebody might look back at my meager Twitter account and go, wow, this is interesting. And I may see a favorite on it. And uh, look at it as worthwhile. Every, every little expression that, that you give in social media is something that can be meaningful to others. And that's my little contribution to NASA. Thank you. Well, I think that's just a wonderful sentiment. And I'd also like to mention that on July 29th, this Wednesday, it's the anniversary of NASA being voted into existence. So it seems like a great time to pile on the love. And while we're piling on the love of NASA, as you know, I've started a new segment this season on NASA spinoffs and talking about the ways that NASA influences, and not just NASA, we will be doing spinoffs from other space agencies as well. But for tonight, we're sticking with NASA. And, and Kathy, before yes? you get started, I do want to share just a quick story about NASA spinoffs. As I mentioned earlier in the program, I've had a lot of fun discussing space with uh, my host family here. Uh, when I got up today, my host dad was the only one home, and uh, or I guess when I got up yesterday, rather, because it was Monday, he asked me something about something in NASA, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but he got really excited, and he was like, go, go, he wanted to show me something, and he like opens the cabinet under our sink to show me NASA technology, NASA technology, to show me our water filtration system, because in Turkey, you have to filter all your water, and to show me that we have a water uh, filtration system that is a NASA spinoff. So I thought that would be something really fun to share with you and our listeners before you go into this week's spinoff. That is fantastic. And also, actually, um, an excellent segue into this week's spinoff because this week I chose some water filtration technology. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Super, super. And in fact, it's two different products that have come from the same technology. I was looking into water filtration because obviously water is one of the most crucial issues on this planet. And I found out that there's a product called NanoCeram, which are these aluminum oxide fibers of only two nanometers in diameter. And they're designed to attract electronegative particles, which includes bacteria and viruses and all kinds of nasty things. And a company called Argonide had developed it, but they're an R&D company and they weren't quite sure about applications yet. 
at the same time, NASA Johnson was looking for new water filtration technology for the space shuttle and the space station. And so the two of them got together through the NASA Small Business Innovation Research Program, and they gave Argonide a contract to determine if NanoCeram would be effective in NASA applications, particularly when it comes to human waste recycling and human water, you know, drinkable, potable water. And so they started out with that project, and then by 2010, they figured out that this works very, very well, and they made a large enough filter to be used for all water that went through the space shuttle with a fully crewed space shuttle. And so they took that technology and they licensed it to a company called the Alstrom Corporation, which also makes water filtration products. And so Argonide, the creators, made some filters with it and then they licensed the rest. Well, then this man named Mohsen Gyasi found this technology through Alstrom Corporation. He was trying to find a way to make a travel water bottle that could filter fast enough where you could just fill it up with water and then drink it like a normal water bottle, but with the filter built right in. And all the filter technology available at the time was too slow. You'd have to wait for it to go through a filter. So he found out about this nanoceram and started buying that. And he found that it was so effective that they only needed to use a 0.8 micron wide filter, which means that water could just go right through it. And so they use a two-step filter with carbon for things like chlorine, like your standard water filters. And then they added the nanoceram and so in most countries, in 120 countries in the world, you can use this one water bottle to safely filter all water. It doesn't work absolutely everywhere. You have to change the filter more frequently if the water isn't very good. But it gets rid of viruses, bacteria, all kinds of chemicals, more things than any other small filtration system and it runs so quickly through you can just use it as your regular water bottle they used a thin walled bpa free and phthalate free plastic and so you just squeeze it just like any other sports bottle so they also provide consumers with information of what level of filtration they need depending on what country they're traveling to the bottles start at 22.95 for a 550 milliliter and they range up to a Forty-nine six-in-one Odyssey model, which combines a water bottle with a drinking and storage cup with a flashlight that you can actually turn around and have the light shining through the water to make a handy lantern that you can use anywhere. It also has a strobe light, so you can use it as a beacon. So if you keep one of these in your car, you have fresh water, you have an emergency beacon, everything you need in one device. So... All of this was inspired by a tiny little piece of NASA partnership technology. Really cool. Make- NASA technology. <laughs> <laughs> making, your, making its way into gymnasiums everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, the important thing is in travel, you know, whether you're camping and you need to filter stream or lake water right here in the United States where we have relatively clean water in most places – to traveling to places where the water is truly risky, this is actually a life-saving technology, potentially. So it's pretty Absolutely. cool. 
Yeah, yeah cat knows. I have been many places in which you cannot drink the water and am currently living in a place which you cannot drink the water. So, I'm wondering, too, if you expand this, if it's uh, you, you know, usable on a much larger scale for water filtration. Well, it is because they used it on the space shuttle to filter all of the water that was used on the space shuttle and that, you know, with a full crew. But I'm I'm sure, you know, on a I know you're probably talking about more of a town scale. That's exactly right. And the thing is, this technology actually is being applied to tons of products. I just wanted to focus on this particular product because I thought it was pretty nifty. But the Nano Ceram, the original spinoff, is being applied in all different ways, both consumer and commercial applications. Yeah, I'm just thinking in places where potable water is scarce. Uh, just using something like this could, as you pointed out, be a potential lifesaver in, in developing countries and what have you. So uh, not, a bad, uh, not a bad quiver to have in your pocket if you're going into one of those places to help with the disaster or just to make sure that the population's in good shape. Absolutely. Water is our number one concern on this planet. And anything we can do to make more water drinkable in more places is phenomenal technology. So I look forward to seeing what other applications they find for this nanoceram. Yep. Still think NASA is not worth it? Just hang around. We'll keep firing these out there and we'll show you how, how uh, space technology just has implications, not just in, in space, but throughout your life. So just stay tuned. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much, Gene McCulka. More to come on New Horizons, folks, and uh, it's been fun. Hope we'll see you next time. Looking so forward to hearing more about New Horizons. Can't get enough of that. And thank you. <coughs> I think something just flew in my mouth. <coughs> um, ah. Ew. <laughs> yeah. Need a, need a filter for that. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> Ooh, Mark from downtown. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. Back into it. Okay. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. <laughs> Little sidebar. We just had totally uh, blew my train of thought. I'm looking forward to hearing more about New Horizons. Thank you, Gene. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody. And especially thank you so much, Kat Robison, for calling in from Turkey. Here, here. <laughs> it was my pleasure to be here to check it out, everyone. And I will see you all when I'm back in the States in a few weeks. Well, thank you so much for going out of your way. And we look forward to having you back stateside. And for the rest of you, have a good day, night, morning, evening, whatever it is, where you are. <laughs> <laughs>